So we're taking a bit of a quantum leap. Uh, we did as much, I think, as we can uh, with the atonement and salvation in 1 Corinthians. I want now to go to 2 Corinthians to Paul's stern letter, because that's the order in which Goodspeed read it. read 1 Corinthians, uh, well, uh, the small snippet of First Corinthians, well, with Second Corinthians uh, six fourteen to eighteen, we read that as his first letter, as, as Goodspeed seems to have done, and First Corinthians as the second letter. So the first Corinthians started in Second Corinthians. So Second Corinthians has this little snippet. Uh, do not be mismatched with unbelievers, and it seems out of place. It doesn't fit the, the context. Uh, so uh, I believe Goodspeed thought that was his first letter. Uh, and then the first Corinthians would be his second letter. And then we're going to go to second Corinthians 10 for his third letter. And this is his called his stern letter. Stern, like being stern. Right. We're not going to read the whole letter or read snippets of it. So, uh, first, uh, Second Corinthians 10 starts as follows. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we are acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For our weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy every stronghold. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so he goes on to tell what they're doing to him. He says, I, in verse 9, I do not want to seem as though I'm trying to frighten you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his body, bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such people understand that what we say by letter when absent, we will do also when present. And then he goes on, uh, verse uh, chapter 11 starts with, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For as someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. I think that I am not the least inferior to these super-apostles, I may be trained in, untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Certainly in every way, in all things, we have made this evident to you. And he, he goes on to unpack that. And then in verse 15, he says, I repeat, let no one think that I am a fool. But if you do, then accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. And then he starts boasting of who he is. Israelite, uh, verse 22 are the Hebrews, so am I. Are the Israelites, so am I. Are the descendants of Abraham, so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Uh, I'm talking like a mad mind, man. I'm a better one. 
with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, and dangers from rivers, and dangers from bandits, and dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and so on. Verse 30, but if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Chapter 12, verse 1. It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the, of the Lord. He talks about a vision he had. And here's something to think about. Therefore, uh, he's talking about his boasting still. Verse 7, at the last part. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me and keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, but it would, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell within me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me, for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. This is this is not the Paul of First Corinthians, is it? No. <laughs> it's really laying it on. Do you think he just got lost patience with them? Or he got... I think he felt that the only way to get through to them... It was so bad. I mean, the situation at Corinth was pretty bad. Uh, they were they were talking out of turn at church. Some people were babbling in tongues. Other people were trying to bear testimony, a prophetic vision, and and there was there was no order in the service. And they were going to the, to their agape feast, their their Lord's supper, uh, to pig out. They would not eat at home. They would come there to eat to eat, and and they would they were gluttons. Yeah. And one man was living with his father's wife. Oh, right, right. Uh, there, there was just a host of, of problems in Corinth, in the Corinthian church. So that's, I think he felt that this is the only way. It was a kind of a thunder from Sinai to get their attention and, and straighten, help them straighten up their act. Even gets into the finances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wherever you find other problems, you find financial difficulties, don't you? <laughs> and he says he shouldn't have brought it to him for free. <laughs> so here's my take on First on Second Corinthians 12. This messenger of Satan and God's message, my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. Paul still had to battle his old man, hmm. the one who went out persecuting people punishing them for following the false Messiah, Jesus. That's probably how he saw it. He wanted to be strong for the Corinthians when he went to visit them. And some physical ailment kept him from it. That's why his speech was bad. I don't know if he was suffering a stroke. I don't know if his vision was a problem. That wouldn't have affected his speech, however. It's possible he had a stroke or something. Uh, scholars can only conjecture really as to what Paul's problem was. 
Did he maybe the impact of when he was blind and the Lord spoke to him? Or? Well, so that's been what a lot of, of scholars have thought, but it doesn't explain his weak speech, hmm. which he mentions here. Anyway, hmm. he... Um, I, I think he would have weak speech because he's always presented as being so dogmatic and clear thinking and speaking and just really. That's in his letters. They say your letters are, are weighty and strong, but your bodily presence and your speech is weak. So when he got up to talk, apparently it wasn't the same as when he's dictating the letter. Anyway, I see this as God saying, I'm not going to remove this thorn in your flesh. Because it keeps you from being overbearing. Mm. It keeps you from being like the old Paul. And um, my grace, it's my grace that you need. That's sufficient for you. It's not my power. It's my grace. Well, then it's really another example of how human we are in being fallen humans. Well, just because we're converted to Jesus doesn't mean we don't still have this old... Old template that we've tended just, to fall uh, into. Yeah. So, uh, my grace is sufficient for your, you. My power or my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So, God's kind of power, God's grace, is made perfect in weakness. So, what... Uh in the remedy, it says to keep me humble and to protect me from arrogance. In the aftermath of seeing the incredible beauty of heaven and hearing heavenly truth, I was affected with a physical ailment. But to keep, like you're saying, to keep him from being arrogant. Mm-hmm. That's what they translated here. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the ver- word NRSV uses is elated. But then he, in the translation here, it's not blaming that on God, though. He's saying, I was afflicted with a physical ailment. It was really an attack from Satan. To well, he simply, he's, he's, keep in mind the remedy is a paraphrase. Right. A very clear paraphrase. Um, he's he's t- simply doing away with the deterministic language that you have throughout the Bible. Mm. Oh. Where it appeals every... It, uh, applies everything to God hmm. as the source. Oh okay. oh, okay. But but that deterministic language is in the text of the original. Hmm. See, he, he manipulates the text a lot. Right. In um, the remedy. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right, so um, this is his stern letter. Um, and I, he, uh, as, there's a, here, here, chapter 13 says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Any charge must be sustained by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned previously and all the others. I warn them now when absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not be lenient, since you desire proof that Christ is speaking in me. See, he's catering to what they want in Paul. They want him to be strong when he comes. Okay, I'll be strong. And then he gives a closing word. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 now. 2 Corinthians 1 is the beginning of his fourth letter. So the second, uh, the stern letter goes through 10 to 12 then. 
12, 10 to 13. 10 to 13, okay. Boy, he really was hitting them. Okay. okay, so 2 Corinthians 1 is his... Um, he talks in, in chapter 1 about the Corinthians consoling him. Uh, so something has changed. This has a different tone. This is more the Paul of 1 Corinthians. Um, and then he says in uh, verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death so that we'd rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue his, us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again, as you also join in helping us by your prayers, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Then he spends... So he's giving the reason why he sent the third letters, the stern letters. He is kind of. Um, sort of. And he'll give more as we go on. It's kind of, uh, you know, like parent with a child, you know, if you really have to be very stern and correct it with them, well, then you can't just always oh, just throw your arms around and love them. You have to have some sort of inroad to start talking again, or a couple argues, you know, a married couple or something, or, or friends argue. you got to have a way to sort of talking to each other again. So this is kind of one way, I think, is just sort of giving a reason why I was so stern. Yeah. And and his sufferings in Asia may well have been his his just emotional anxiety about what he had written and how it was going to be received mm-hmm. because he feared he'd come on too strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit, for I, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I am confident about all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote out of much distress and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Hmm. But if anyone has caused me pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent not to exaggerate it to all of you. This, this punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So he's talking about this man who was living with his mother's, his, his father's mother, wife. Um, this punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So now instead you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forsaken, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now he backtracks and tells his story about this stern letter. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So apparently he sent Titus to bear the letter, the stern letter, to Corinth. Mm. And he was expecting to see Titus before he even got to Troas. And Titus wasn't there. And he got very worried. Do we know where Titus was? Well, he, he had gone to Corinth to deliver the, right. the letter. But he was supposed to meet Paul. But do we know historically what happened? No. Oh. 
he apparently he got detained at, detained at Corinth. Mm-hmm. But thanks be to God. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, uh, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. And he, he goes on. So uh, I thought there was another sequel. Um, if you go to chapter 8. No, that's a different one. Okay, here it is. Chapter 7. Towards the end. So chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted in every way, disputes without, fears within. But God, who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly. Now I rejoice not not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself guiltless in the matter. So although I wrote you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong nor on account of the one who wronged, who was wronged, but in order that your zeal for us might be made known to you before God. In this we find comfort. In addition to our own consolation, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his mind has been set rest at rest by all of you. For I have been somewhat boastful about you to him. I was not disgraced, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true as well. And his heart goes out all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you welcomed him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So this is what I'm trying to get here is the storyline mm-hmm. of these letters. And the only way to do that is to assume that certain parts of uh, 2 Corinthians were written uh, here and, and certain parts of 2 Corinthians were written there and, and so on. So the 43 theological scholars that put King James Version together, they couldn't see the... Very few scholars until Goodspeed could see it, that pattern. Um, it was good to be the piece that out. Because yeah, the timeline, the way you do it, makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So apparently, just about Titus, so apparently he was delayed in front Corinth, and then he was delayed. Maybe he was dealing with the letters, and then he got eventually back to Paul. Right. But <laughs> right. Boy. All right. So let's do First Corinthians. I mean, sorry, Second Corinthians. Three. We're now we've we've now finished that topic, and we're ready to deal with what Paul says in in Second Corinthians three, four, and five um, are very important chapters when it comes to salvation. And we're going to start with we'll start with verse five of Second Corinthians three. That uh, well, let's start with verse four. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, 
Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone tablets, came in glory, so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, how much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory? Indeed, what has once, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. So if you, if you have a three-way light bulb and you turn the switch on, the glory you have, the light you have with that one light bulb, once you turn the other the switch on again, you don't see the light of that first light bulb. Mm. You see the light of the greater glory. Mm. And that's what Paul is saying about God's glory. Mm. Since then, and, and this, I want, I want to relate this to actually Moses asking to see God's glory. And mm-hmm. God saying, I make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. But I will put you in the cleft of the rock and hide you with my hand, cover your face with my hand, so that you do not see my face. You will only see my backside, for no one can see my face and live. Mm. This is extremely counterintuitive to the ancient Near East. Mm. Mm. Because if you saw a person's face, that was their favor. Mm -hmm. If if a subject stood before the king and the king turned his face away... Uh, I think I've said this before in this class. I can't remember, but this study that I've been doing in the 1200s is very important, the face. Yeah. So, the, so if, for example, David says about, Abs, uh, about Absalom, he shall not see my face. Mm. Meaning he's out of favor. Right. David has turned his back on his son Absalom. And, and so God showing his backside to Moses is his showing his wrath. Because God's wrath is his turning away his face and turning his back on his people. That, that's how the ancient Near Eastern mind would see it. Wow. Particularly the Israelite mind or the Hebrew mind. So that's his wrath side. It's his face, the grace, the love, the mercy, the favor. His face is a consuming fire. Everybody would be destroyed if they saw his face. Mm. And that's totally opposite to what how the ancient Near East would see it. Um, which means that it's not his wrath that directly kills us. The, his wrath is letting us go to the consequences of our choice, and right. that is what right. kills us. Right. Right. But his face... The wicked see his face when he really reveals his face... That glory of him, which is love, will destroy them. Because in the New Jerusalem, the fire comes through the saved people. It doesn't kill them and then destroys the, the wicked. Now, which is the book? Desire of Ages. Okay. So she ends in chapter, I mean, page 763. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined in him rebel- joined him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish. 
root and branch, Satan the root and his followers the branches. The word will be fulfilled to the prince of evil, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Then the wicked shall not be, yea, they shall diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. It will be they will be as though they had not been. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. See, it isn't even God turning his back. It's, they cut themselves off from life. They reject his face and go to his back. He is alienated from the life of, Christ, of God. Christ says, all they that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. That's how I've come to see it, is that his face, that his love, that consumes sin wherever it's found. I mean, love just embraces, and by embracing, sin and selfishness have to leave. I saw that exemplified in my mentor in graduate school. One day, one of his colleagues down the hall from his office was berating him to me. There was a lot of tension in that department when I was there. And my mentor came out of his office. He apparently could hear enough to tell him what was going on. And he came out of his office and he came right up to this man who was who had been berating him and shook his hand and, and warmly talked to him. And all of that just, just to see it dissipate. <laughs> and I never forgot that object lesson that that told me that love love cannot coexist with selfishness and pride and and rejection and all those things. And so love consu- consumes it. And those who are completely loveless, who have completely adopted the other way of looking at God, that face of, of God, looking at them in love, is consuming. So, moving on. Since then we have such hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. This is, remember at the end of this experience, Moses comes down the mountain and the people can't handle his glory. This is the glory of the backside of God. But it's too strong and powerful for the people. It's another example of why the more we're studying and the older I get, I don't think we really have a clue about heaven, what it's going to be like. Or, uh, I can't imagine that. I don't think we could, we could live through the experience in our fleshly bodies. No. no. It, it's, it's... That, that glory, that light, that, that life, our bodies couldn't handle it. We can hardly deal with a hundred years of life. What are we going to do for billions of years? Oh, but, but see, 
See, there won't. I was telling my students in my God and Human Suffering class the other day that all the things that won't be in heaven, we won't have doctors and and nurses and and dentists and and what have you in heaven. Uh, We won't have uh, business people because we won't be buying or selling. What are we going to do with all that time? Relationships. It's going to be about relationships. And relationship with, chiefly relationship with God. And that's, I think, what we're least prepared for. We're not prepared to listen, to live next door to God. Which is sad. I was thinking maybe setting up a hundred year reunion for the Sabbath school class so that we all get together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that will be both a joy and, uh, and a dismay yeah. because some won't be there. <laughs> but their minds, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is there. So Moses had to put a veil over their face, and the people had were, veiled their faces, and that is their minds. Mm. That same veil is there since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I see that as a test of the spirits. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and where there is no freedom, the Spirit of the Lord is not. It's not. Right. And I think we should apply that to general conference sessions. So if we if we can look at God's face and his love, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, if we can look at his face, we become like that. Mm-hmm. The greater the glory, the greater the transformation. The word is tr- uh, transformation rather than just Conformity. And it's not a duplication, or it's not just a conformity, mm-hmm. like a robot or something. No, we we, we, met, we missed we missed reading this when we did Romans. I think I would have spent some time with it. Romans twelve, verse one. Maybe I did briefly talk about it, but I want to mention it again. Romans twelve, verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Um, my version has spiritual, but has a footnote, reasonable. The word is logikos, from which we get logic. Mm. It's your rational worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul sees what we do with the world as conformity. Mm. We conform to the world, but only God can transform us. 
Mm-hmm. And his work is transformation rather than mere conformity. Right. So I think one of my outcomes for all my classes that I have in my head, I don't put it on my syllabus, but one of my private outcomes for my class, I want them through Jesus, his presence in the classroom. I want them to have a transforming experience. Not a conforming one, but a transforming one. And I have seen the presence of God at work in my classroom. It's so counter, though, to the way we're raised in society and the way the world functions, because it's really a conforming process in the world. In the, when you're a little child, you're taught to conform, follow rules, rights and wrongs. And I think a lot of people are stuck at that childlike level through their lives. They never mature. They don't transform beyond. Because unless, you, unless your child has a transforming experience, they can't. They're stuck as long as they don't understand the transforming power of God. I'm fortunate. I, I'm extremely fortunate because my mother dedicated me to God as soon as she knew she was pregnant with me. And... God gave me my first transforming experience when he brought healing on Christmas Eve. Hmm. My mother said as she went out and saw that I was so much better and I was cooing and gurgling for the first time in my short life, she said you could feel the presence of the Lord Hmm. in that place. And I know that my cooing and gurgling, I was responding to that presence. Hmm. Hmm. Did you have coop or what? I had... um, I had indigestion, severe, in, severe colic. colic. Uh, I screamed from 6 in the morning to 11 at night. Mm-hmm. That was stopping. They tried 11 different formulas, and none of them worked. Mm-hmm. What I was, it was gluten and dairy intolerant, mm-hmm. and nobody knew. They didn't know what to do. And God intervened so I could thrive. But I, I believe that I didn't just respond to the loss of pain. I responded to this presence that was in the room on Christmas morning. Um, so that started really young because you've talked about when you were like three or four or different events. and then God has been there in significant times in my life to keep me from that conformity model. And then you were like Paul when you were like grade 14, school, high school. 14, I was a legalist. I was like Paul, yes. I was actually that way from about 11 to 14. 14, right. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, then I had that experience with God looking at the Bible and looking at the story through his eyes, the whole Bible story. Mm. Yeah, so, so I've, I understand the, the transformative model very well, mm-hmm. but I also understand the conformity model. The conformity model does not engage the mind. It only engages the will, but not the reasoning powers, mm-hmm. not the, the motive powers, not even the emotions. So one way of viewing it then is the conforming that's going on with people in our society now. They've lost all the boundaries to help them. Their love of God, 
country, and family. So they're really just left with their emotions. And they also are left with their physical. But they're they're left with all the wrong emotions. There's good oh, emotion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's but love. They're, there's yeah. compassion. There's, uh, and love isn't not just an emotion. Right. But but nevertheless, Jesus moved with great compassion. Right. That's a feeling. Uh, they're lost. They're left with all the selfish emotions. But yeah, they 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 lost the the guidelines on a conformity level that could have helped you learn how. But conformity can never bring conformity can never bring us to transformation. No. Transformation, that's a gift from God. That's that's a the transforming power of the spirit. So they lost their their foundations of how to understand the emotions, and they're falling back on the more negative emotions like selfishness and greed, and self-destruction and just a willingness not to... It's not just that they lost. What they've never gained is the greater loss. Hmm. They've never gained a transforming experience with God. Hmm. Right, right. And that's that's, that's God. That's the only thing that can get them out of that Hmm. modality is the love of God. That's one of the reasons why the 12-step program has worked so well, is because they emphasize the love of God, and that they develop a community of love and, and openness and respect for everyone. Well, like when I was saying, that studying the 1200s there, in that period with the, uh, the tribes in Anatolia and that, and their Islamic beliefs at the time was that you had to have God and the transforming of the Quran, transforming of the Bible. And it's understanding that God and the Bible work together, that this is really food for us. We talk in our church about food from the Bible, but I don't know if we are emphasizing that much now. Well, because we don't know how to read it. You're right. We don't know how to read it, and then we're not opening our minds for the transformations. I re- I read the Bible religiously when I was a child before I was converted, and and it was boring, and I had a hard time reading it. After my conversion, it was like a new book, and it was like the 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 old lenses of darkness had been lifted off my eyes, and I now could see what I hadn't seen before. I even believed when I was fourteen that Ellen White didn't believe in a loving God. And I had read Desire of Ages. <laughs> but I was so blind, I couldn't see. Well, Paul, I mean, you had good intentions. <laughs> I, my my uh, housemate, when I lived off campus at Andrews University, my housemate heard me say that, and she said, Jean, I don't see how you could read Desire of Ages and believe that Ellen White didn't believe in a loving God. <laughs> It's like, well, I was pretty blind. (laughs) (laughs) I think that actually legalism and a conformity kind of model Hmm. deteriorates the mind and atrophies the brain. Hmm. I think there's a physiological result to that. 
And contrast is the transformation of the spirit helps the new brain cells to just go crazy. Well, I think that's right. The more we're learning about the structure of the brain and how it works. So the student I was mentioning to you that's really struggling with uh, the Bible and, and the mistakes in the Bible, like in the four Gospels, he's really thinks he's found a lot of mistakes and things that don't make sense to hold together. And uh, so as I work with him, I'm really glad that he's thinking about it and struggling with it rather than just throwing it away. And he's still thinking, thinking, right. thinking. But uh, we don't want to destroy that thinking process. Uh, but if they tell us, well, lots of do- now you got to go back to your do's and don'ts, that stops the thinking, mm-hmm. and it just goes. Into- and once a person has been enlightened, if they go back to that, that's why Paul says, uh, if they go back to that, there's no hope for them. Mm-hmm. Because they rejected the light they had. Well, then that's also one reason he, for a variety of reasons, he had to write those letters. Right. He, he couldn't not. He had to them. jar them yeah, out yeah. of their that modality. But then, of course, he was just reeked with <laughs> anxiety right. and and distress because he thought, "Oh, I've overdone it." But Titus told him it was all okay, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's have closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the journey of Paul and his work with the believers in Corinth. It it gives us a template, a a way of looking at how he ministered and the risks he was willing to take for the sake of the good of the people who he's ministering to. I pray that You will help us to be like Paul and let the Spirit guide us in whatever way we need to be guided to bring transformation to my students and, and to those who we minister to. I pray that you will make us, that you will transform us through your love rather than merely getting us conformed to your will. We ask that we may have such a transforming experience with you, that it will forever change the way we think about you and think about others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.